0: Hello, ladies. Welcome to the Hourly to Exit podcast. I'm your host, Erin Austin. My goal with every episode is to share information and resources to help you achieve the next level of growth in your expertise-based business. We all know that generating income from our expertise, well, that's the easy part. The challenge is in scaling and building a business that can run without you. Join me on the journey to building an asset that can be used to fund your goals and your legacy. But before we get started, one little disclaimer, because, well, I'm a lawyer. The information I share on this podcast is general in nature and is provided for information purposes only. It is not to be relied upon nor construed as providing legal advice or opinions about any specific issue or set of facts. Now, let's do this. Welcome to the hourly to exit podcast, ladies. I am so excited for the episode today. I'm very pleased to welcome Eva Janata to the podcast. Welcome, Eva.
1: Hey, Erin. I'm so excited.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too. I've known Eva for a while. You're gonna really enjoy our conversation today. But before we get going, Eva, would you introduce yourself to the audience?
1: Yes. So this is Eva Janata. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a thought leadership advisor and trainer for women entrepreneurs.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, you can even tell I th- she is um, positive my first guest to uh, use her pronouns. And that will be part of what we're going to talk about today. Eva is a leader in the, uh, I'm going to call it, equity and inclusion although i know that's more of an employee employer type of terminology but it's kind of the way that i think about it. You know, eva is super inclusive in the way that she markets herself and in house she provides services and so that dei equity and inclusion you know we see it all the time in the employment space you know dei consultants can't get enough people to help them they're, you know they're so busy providing those services But we don't really see it in the B2B space. You know, it's like, well, if they're not your client, if they can't afford you, frankly, we hear that all the time. If they can't afford you, then they're not your client, right? Right. And uh, you're not, you're you're a for-profit, you're not a nonprofit. you got to make a profit. And uh, and I feel like you've done a really good job of balancing all those things. And so first, I want to say that, you know, in your bio that you submitted to me, you mentioned, I cannot pronounce this, but the ancestral lands that you live on in Phoenix, Tell me about that, why you include that, what that means to you.
1: Yeah, thank you. So I realized right when I was introducing myself, I thought, shoot, I should have pasted the names of those tribal lands right in front of my face. So I could have said them right at the outset with my pronouns. So that was a, a, a quick learning moment for me as I just think about all the ways I want to prepare to introduce myself. So I'll say it now. Mm-hmm. So I do live on Odom Jewid. Akamel Odom and Hohokam Ancestral Land in Phoenix, Arizona. And that, along with the pronouns and some other, I guess, small but cumulative choices that I make and I seek to model are some of the ways that I strive to be inclusive and to think about equity. And I must tell you, Erin, it was very meaningful to hear you describe me as a leader in that because I don't identify that way, you know, in, in terms of the in the fact that like, I don't offer services specifically about DEIB or anything of that nature. You know, I'm in leadership and it's kind of companion, which is marketing, but it's really meaningful to me to hear that as someone who's in my audience as a colleague, that you have that impression or that experience of leadership from me. That means a lot because I have, I do think about it often and try to do what I can, always improving to make that a priority.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I literally have not heard other people talking about it in the B2B space. Mm. So I I am very inspired by that. And of course, you know, this podcast is about the mission is to help get more wealth in the hands of women because, you know, I and I think you believe that we do better things with it. And uh, and so I, I love to see that. So we are going to talk about your services, I promise, but one of the things also that you have in your business is you have, I don't know if sliding scale is the right term to use, but you have different ways for people to get access to your brilliance and tell us about that.
1: Yeah, thank you. So I rolled out this concept that I did not invent called equity pricing. I actually don't know if there's one person responsible for kind of coining that term, but the concept of equity pricing is based on the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and you know she published what's super well known now her intersectional theory in 1989 and that's the idea that if you have multiple historically marginalized identities they don't each exist in a vacuum right like they all can compound each other and impact your access to resources your ability to feel like you belong or are welcomed in different spaces and on and on and on. So the notion of equity pricing is to allow someone who's purchasing a group program with me. So if they're enrolling in my micro marketing method program or in my exponential audience programs, depending upon the identities that they live, that they identify with, that will impact and reduce the total amount that they invest to be in the program. And It's partly material, you know, they do pay less to enroll, but it's also symbolic because I want to provide my clients with the experience of their identities, which in some ways may have been barriers to access over the course of their lives. I want them to have the experience of their identities being a benefit, like a tangible financial benefit and have a really material experience that they're welcome here and their perspective is desired. And one of the ways I try to make that clear is through the equity pricing offer.
0: And what feedback have you gotten from people who come to you just based on your profile as a marketing thought leadership, marketing person, and they find this out? Like what what kind of feedback do you get from them?
1: So far, it's been very positive. So I work at this time exclusively with people who identify as women. So I find that the women who come to enroll in my programs are overwhelmingly like surprised slash really delighted because most of them, or maybe all of them haven't had this kind of experience before. And you mentioned the concept of a sliding scale. And so many of them have purchased a service with a sliding scale, which can be really important, but this is different because it's tied closely to how you self-identify. And what I do is I give my client a list of potential identities. Some of them might be visible identities. Some of them might be identities that aren't so visible, such as chronic illness or mental health challenges. And I just ask them to give me a number. You know, How many of these historically marginalized identities do you experience? They don't need to tell me what they are because if they want to keep that private, I understand, although they're also welcome to share if they want to do that. And they just give me a number. And from there, I calculate what their total investment in the program will be. And everyone that I've offered this to so far has loved it. Mm
0: -hmm. That is fantastic.
1: Yeah. And so did
0: you have any fears about this going in? Because again, you know, you are a for-profit business. In order for you to continue to share your message, you have to stay in business. Did you have any fears about doing this?
1: One concern I had is, you know, I work in my group of programs and I work privately with one-to-one clients. So one concern I had is I was worried that my private clients would say, Hey, how come you don't offer equity pricing to me? And so far, none of them have asked that. So my fear about, you know, having to kind of address that with them, I haven't had to yet, but even if I did, what I made sure was clear myself is, and this speaks to just what you mentioned, Erin, which is like the fact of being a for-profit business is the way my business model is now. Because my work for private clients includes a lot of deliverables that I pay other workers to help me produce, I need to keep my profit margins at a certain place to be able to afford to provide those services. And my hope down the line is that my group programs will continue to grow. And since those are more scaled offerings, the more people I offer them to, the more I can make a profit on those. So I'm hopeful that over time. I will be making enough of a profit off the group programs that I will be able to afford to offer equity pricing to my private clients. I don't know Mm -hmm. how slash when that will come to be, but that was something I had to think about before I kind of debuted this equity pricing model for the group programs. It's just how do I make sure that that I convey why group and not private? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm hopeful that should any of my private clients raise that concern, I'd be able to address it comfortably with them.
0: Yeah. What's interesting about this? One of the things that I have emphasized to business owners is sometimes, you know, our businesses are just about maximizing our income so that we can downstream use it for the things that we care about, for charitable giving or, or following whatever your passions are. And so maybe it's not in the business that we have to give away our services or do things like that. But it's like you found like this kind of really interesting balance of being able to, one, maximize the value of your expertise while also providing benefits within the context of a for-profit business about supporting people that you want to support. So wow, that is so cool.
1: Thank you. Yeah. You know, you make an interesting point. And I'm, if someone listening, if your goal is like, I want to maximize now, cause I've got big plans later. Mm-hmm. I think that's fantastic. And if you're clear on how that's going to work and you're content with it, then cheers. Mm-hmm. And I know, but I know for myself, you know, for, for many of us, and I think, and I identify as a white woman. So I'm going to speak just to my experience, but I know for myself and many other white people that I know the murder of George Floyd in 2020 was a Huge wake-up call, and my ego would love to be able to tell you that I was already practicing anti-racism in my business, and I was already being public about some of these decisions. But I wasn't. Like many, many, many white people, we kind of knew there was a problem, but and that was sort of the extent of the actions we took about it. Was just sort of like, yeah, I know it's bad, and I sometimes donate, and that was sort of the end of it. But when that happened, I realized like it felt non-negotiable to immediately to make changes and to use my platform as small as it is to quote unquote, be the change and to also just like walk my talk.
0: Hey everyone, a quick word from our sponsor. Think beyond IP. Think beyond IP helps your professional services firm build the essential legal and strategic foundation required to confidently scale your business by developing, protecting, and leveraging intellectual property assets. You can find us at thinkbeyondip.com. Now back to the show.
1: You know, I got my undergraduate degree in gender and women's studies, and it was a very intersectional education. And it was the first time I understood why things are the way they are. And they are the way they are, not just because of gender oppression. And just to live with myself, that was part of it, but also to be a leader and to, you know, I think especially like, again, talking about white people, we have such a rich legacy of doing nothing. And that changes with every single one of us doing something, even if it's a little something to start with. So over the years since 2020, I have just wanted to try to do a little bit more and a little bit more. First, I have to do it within myself and then sharing it with others. And so the equity pricing is one of those things. You know, Donating 1% of our profits every quarter to an organization led or serving Black and or Indigenous women is another. So- my hope is that the cumulative effect of those things, you know, has a small but mighty ripple effect, and not just the impact of, of my actions, but how the people in my community might be inspired to do the same or similar.
0: Yeah, yeah. You use the word legacy. Many people think the legacy is like that big, grand thing that we do at the end, right? But it's the little things we do every day, like we're creating our legacy every day with the things that we do, how we impact the people around us, our communities, the environment, that's all part of our legacy. And so yeah, you are a great example of doing something every day. So thank you for that. All right. So what do you do? Who do you do it for? How do you help people? Why do they come to you?
1: Yeah. Okay. Just a little question, (laughs) a little couple of questions there. Yeah. So thought leadership training and advisory, that's what I do. But what does that even mean? So first I want to just define thought leadership. So this is a phrase in the business world that has a jargon flavor. It's like tossed around a lot. It's maybe not always clear what it actually is. And a very basic definition is that thought leadership is the expression of ideas that demonstrate you have expertise in your field. So that could be through writing or studies or books or speaking, podcasting. And that's a serviceable definition. But I work with my women clients on something a little deeper, which I call magnetic thought leadership. And this is to provide provocative insights and a strong position in our unique voice to make an intellectual impact and position ourselves as authorities so we can build wealth and power and drive social change. So what that means to me is of course thought leadership has a lot of power for business applications. It's dynamite for marketing, for prospecting, for pitching yourself to opportunities, for becoming known, you know, building a body of work of intellectual property. And that's all great. There's another aspect of it which I think doesn't get as much airtime in the marketplace and that's the self-actualization of really committing yourself to discover or to excavate. What do I really think? What is my insight into this that might nudge against the status quo? What strong opinions do I have and how can I build the courage muscles to share those strong opinions? Because strong and bold and provocative opinions are magnetic. You know, bland stuff is not memorable. <laughs> A lot of the quote unquote thought leadership that I come across and that probably you and anyone listening does is like pretty bland. It maybe repeats the same stuff. It doesn't, doesn't stop you in your metaphorical tracks. And then the final aspect I'll share about the work I do with clients, which practically speaking is usually teaching them how to write their magnetic thought leadership, writing and reading are my love language. So that's my thought leadership specialty. As opposed to, like, I know you've interviewed Carol Cox, our colleague who specializes in public speaking thought leadership. So mine is writing. And so I'm helping my clients to, through the process of ideating, you know, excavating the ideas, uncensoring themselves through drafting, through polishing and formatting and making the thought leadership asset really magnetic to read and that stops the scroll. And a key part of that is helping my clients to use their unique voices and throughout schooling. And if you've had a corporate career, often you're, you're kind of trained to quash your unique voice. You know, you're not supposed to swear. You're not supposed to be goofy. You're not supposed to be playful. You're not supposed to use slang, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes, you know, it's important to be able to communicate a certain way. Sure. But when you are trying to Magnetize people to work with you and hire you, the more you you can be, the more you'll stand out and attract your right fit people and repel those that aren't the right fit.
0: There's a couple of things I hope that I made a good enough dose here. That one was you know, you use the term bold and provocative, and you work with people who identify as women. And so, do you find that in particular with this group that we have? the most trouble being bold and taking risks because, you know, we're women. And so so sometimes it's a little harder for us. So tell me about how that plays into how you work with your clients.
1: Definitely. So being bold is not the item you check off your to-do list, but an ongoing process of self-discovery and trial and error. And so some of the things I work on with clients is just like building and feeling safety in the body. You know, how can you start your thought leadership practice in a way that doesn't send you into fight or flight, or that doesn't open you up to negative feedback or strong pushback that you might not have the confidence or the kind of like resilience muscles to address comfortably. And all of that is built with time. And that's why I talk about thought leadership as a lifestyle, you know, not Like a one off. This Mm -hmm. is something I recommend that people do over time and that I do for myself over time. And so part of it is, yeah, like, you know, it's like not sexy, but like the more you practice, the better you get at something and the more confidence you build. So there's that very practical aspect. But the other thing that I need to be very careful of as a white person is my likelihood for getting pushback or negative criticism or. Someone asking me to put in the receipts, cite the studies, prove my points, my likelihood for facing that is much less than a woman of color. And so I need to be mindful of that when I'm working with my women of color clients to just have a level of awareness that the advice I might give to myself or another white person might not be safe or appropriate or applicable to a woman of color's experience or her more likely situation. So when that's the case, I just try to listen, never gaslight, um, never misbelieve anyone, but just do what I can to suggest other ways that these women of color clients can practice building resilience and courage muscles, but also do they need to take extra measures? Do they need to cite studies more than I would have to Mm -hmm. to circumvent or try to avoid that kind of pushback. That's an unfair reality, Mm -hmm. but it is a reality that I do my best to acknowledge and address. All right, I'm gonna hit on that and go back to my other point. So just like how did you come
0: to this? Like is this through working with women of color that they gave you the pushback that made you aware of this or is that part of your studies or like how did you know that you needed to Bring this sensitivity to this for your different audience?
1: Yeah. So, all of the above, you know, some of it came from learning and reading. And, like I said, my undergraduate education in gender and women's studies, which was an intersectional field, really helped. The thought leaders I was exposed to back then really helped lay the foundation. But, and now I would say it's a combination of the women of color thought leaders that I read and follow, and also my women of color clients who are so generous with their feedback and their perspective and their stories. And so I just pay close attention to what they're telling me. And just every instance of that is just another kind of like, it goes in the back of my mind in a little filing cabinet in my brain of like, okay, this is how it is for some people. And you're going to remember this and apply this forward. So I'm always just like very grateful to just anyone who teaches anyone anything. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so many people are just generous with their stories and their experience. And you know, those can be very tender and very vulnerable. So I really cherish the relationships that I have with women of color, just like my in my personal life and also professionally and their willingness to be open with me about their experience so I can be a better steward of my work with them.
0: That's awesome. Well, that kind of ties into the point I wanted to go back to, which was you know, kind of evolving from our corporate voices to having kind of our individual voices as business owners and as thought leaders. And the challenge, you know, like I talk about getting out of that hourly mindset and getting into, you know, a profit-based mindset instead of just an income-based mindset. And for you, stopping the corporate speak, but being more yourself, and that's different for everybody, right? And can say personally, for me, you know, my writing has evolved. I mean, <laughs> if I went back two years to my LinkedIn staff, it uh-huh. would all be, this is what I, p-. I mean, it would be really legal, like very, peda- I mean, it would just be just terrible. <laughs> now, I'm not even saying that what I'm doing is so brilliant now, but it's feel, it's me. Like it's, it's just, it's me. It's easy. i feel like when I'm writing my newsletter, I feel like I'm talking to the person who's on the other end. I don't feel Ugh. like writing a newsletter, you know, Wonderful. and, uh, and it just kind of makes everything slow, honestly. And so it's not when you're trying to be someone that you're not like, it just affects everything. I mean, just in being able to get comfortable with that is is so important.
1: Yeah. And you hit on a couple of the ways that we are able to do that. One of them is practice. And mm-hmm. And also not judging our past selves too harshly for the fact that we were inevitably not as good as it back then as we are now or Mm -hmm. will be later. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like you said, being yourself, feeling like you're addressing one person or a close friend, that's really the energy that I encourage myself and my clients to bring to the table. And truthfully, I think you do great at this. And I, I actually have a screenshot of one of your LinkedIn posts in one of my presentations because I think you do a really good job of like, Being engaging and educational, and it's valuable, and it's often a little bit funny or a little unexpected. All you kind of you hit on a lot of these points that make social media posts likely to stop the scroll. And you know, you ask like, "How do we do it?" And so it's practice, and it's like you know, certain tricks like picture one person or other maybe writing advice that you've heard is a big part of it. I think also it just. Takes time, and so being really patient with the process is is hard, but like really important. And you know, I'll give you an example that that's actually has an application not you know outside of, of thought leadership itself. But I recently had uh, the experience of doubling my prices for my private clients. Yay! Yay! Yeah. yeah. Speaking <laughs> of an hour, an hourly to profit mindset. Yes. <laughs> you know, this really defied the conventional wisdom I would received, which is that you never raise your prices for existing clients. You only raise them for new clients, or you only raise them by like 10% a year or something very gradual. And I actually doubled my prices for nearly all of my long-term thought leadership clients, like private clients. Some of the newer ones had already even raised to that rate, but many of, of the ones that had worked with me for a few years were at a much lower rate. And it was time to change that. And I was extremely nervous, but I had a really helpful conversation with my coach who helped me write a template for these price increase conversations. And what worked so well is that the template was super honest and in my voice. I didn't make myself try to persuade them in a certain way. I didn't act like there was this specific reason like, oh, I, my expenses have increased and that's why I have to do that. No, I just explained that this was what me and my business needed. And I hoped that they would continue to work with me and I would understand if they didn't. And so that is another example of how having practiced for so many years, really using my voice and having learned to trust that my voice is enough, that I don't need to rely on persuasive arguments all the time, especially in these long-term relationships, was so valuable but I wouldn't have been able to do that a few years ago. It was only now that I think I had the courage and the practice to be able to do that with confidence.
0: Absolutely. I love that. Well, one place where we have worked together is your round table. So tell me about your
1: round tables and
0: how they work and all the things.
1: Thanks for asking. I love these. So my round tables are they're called the Women Leaders Roundtable. It's invitation only, but the way to get an invitation is just by asking me for one. Anyone listening, if you're interested, once I describe them, reach out to me on LinkedIn and I would love to have you join one. So I started this series because I'd never met a networking opportunity I liked. Mm. Even though I identify as an outgoing person, I love making new friends and meeting new people. I just, if I never have to go to another like, networking happy hour or luncheon again, it'll be too soon. Like I just (laughs) want nothing to do with those. They just, they tended to feel very transactional, very rushed. They were often kind of overstimulating environments. And the way I most enjoy connecting with people and what I find most nourishing about it is in much more intimate contexts. But as we all know, one-to-one is not very scalable. So I knew I didn't want my full-time job to be Coffee dates on Zoom or whatever, yeah. you know, virtual coffees. So I started, I was actually um, introduced to this concept by my uh, colleague Aisha Conkworth, who's also here in Phoenix. She invited me to one. It was a 90 minute Zoom call with a couple of other people, and it, she had some slides, and they each had a few questions on them, and we all took turns answering them. And I was extremely skeptical because I thought 90 minutes with some strangers, like, it seems kind of risky. But after the call, I felt so filled up, and there was something really nourishing about being in that smaller, having someone lead the conversation, but with enough room for you know breakout talks to happen. And so I started hosting these myself. Coincidentally, right when COVID kicked off, and they are COVID approved, so that worked in my favor. So basically, it's a ninety minute conversation between me and Max, four other women. I share some slides. We take some turns answering questions about ourselves and our work. And what is so valuable about it, I think, is that the format, because it's loosely structured with time for spontaneity, ensures that people who identify as introverted or shy or extroverted and outgoing all have the space to share, but not over or undershare mm-hmm. because it's taking turns. Right. And you know, I get overwhelmingly positive feedback from women who attend these. And it wasn't for about, I don't know, a year and a half after I started doing them that I came across some research by, I can't remember the name of the researcher, unfortunately, Shelly, something maybe. Anyway, she had done some research that found that women, when we respond to stress, you know, we have the fight or flight or freeze response that everyone's heard of. She identified an additional behavior that women participate in to alleviate stress that she titled tend and befriend. Mm -hmm. And what it is is plugging into social networks mm. and like bonding and relying on social ties to help alleviate stress. And I thought like, it was like a light bulb because these roundtable conversations are providing exactly that, this intimate, safe, confidential container to really share what you're working on, what's going well, what's a struggle. And while it might seem unlikely to to kind of get that stress release from a couple of strangers. What I've found is that it actually works really, really well. You don't just have to talk to your mom or your best friend or your sister. You can actually get these same tendon befriend stress relieving benefits from talking with people who you just met. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. Well, as a participant, I can also provide a point of benefit as well. I mean, I wonderful women there. Super smart people, which is, you know, that's why I like that curated element to it. It's not just anyone, that invitation and the small setting so that you all do participate. You know, I am actually an introvert. And so I tend to, if it's a large group of people, I'm just going to like hang out. And, uh, but being, you know, everyone on the screen coming together and having those prompts to encourage participation and we've all been in those groups where somebody, you know, hugs the mic, so to speak. And so it is a wonderful balance of all of those things. And yeah, and continuing to be in touch with those ladies and Excellent. have building relationships. So it is it is wonderful. So, so thank you for that. And, uh, and thank you for, for sharing that. Now, one of the things that you mentioned is that you don't consider it intellectual property. Why is
1: that? Do you mean the roundtables particularly? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's this is interesting because I remember in our roundtable conversation, because you know, the other women knew that you were an IP person and a lawyer, someone asked, like, well, would Eva's roundtable format be considered IP? Mm-hmm. And I believe you said no. And I forget why. You had <laughs> I don't remember. But they made sense. And I guess in my not as educated mind compared to, you know, you'll be able to really lay the knowledge on us on this, but, you know, it's, I didn't invent it. You know, I got the idea from someone else and I share the idea widely. That's, that's kind of my mm, main, yeah. I'm like, this can't really be IP. I don't, I didn't make it up. But also, I guess that raises the question for you to answer, which is like, where are the lines between mm-hmm. IP and not IP? And that's a tricky one with, you know, written or spoken thought leadership, too. I mean, there's that, there's that phrase, like there are no new ideas. Right. <laughs> Where, how do you determine if something's yours? What, how, what makes it yours versus mm-hmm. something that's part of the public domain?
0: Yeah. Well, you're, you are correct that ideas are not intellectual property, but how you execute on them mm-hmm. can be if it is original to you. And so let's take the example of your roundtable. I mean, lots of people do roundtables. That's not unique to you. But you have a structure to it. You have prompts. So the way that you lead your group through that experience, if it is backed by slides, questionnaires, prompts, things like that, exercises, those things combine to create a system, a process for your roundtable, that could be. Protectable IP. Well, I have a follow-up question.
1: So, in your experience, Aaron, like, how do you help people determine, like, is this, you know, I public domain idea that I'm applying in a unique way that might be IPable?
0: Good, <laughs> like IPable. I'm writing that down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it might be IPable. How do you help your clients determine if it's worth? really like going through the process to make something a protected piece of your IP? Because like there's probably various things that could be or could not be depending upon the different variables you mentioned. Do you ever find that clients are like, well, is it even worth it for this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean,
0: first of all, something might be, I'm going to start with the public domain, just because something's like internet doesn't mean it's on the public domain. Just because it's publicly available does not uh-huh. equal public domain. Because public domain means there's no Copyright protection on it, so you no, know, something written by Shakespeare or Beethoven's Fifth. These things are in the public domain. Other things you can get on the internet, but they're still owned by someone who has a copyright on it. And uh, and so, what do you want to protect? Well, do, I mean, it kind of does it have value to you? Like that's the question. Like, is it something that you are selling that has a long term? Like, even if it's not something that you're selling, like maybe some marketing piece. That you're going, its a long term. Like you have an ebook that has your manifesto on it, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't sell that, but it obviously has value for you. So where where does it fit? And uh, you know, people generally don't copyright things like their websites because it's fluid, it's changing. I mean, I you know, I you know, if I knew how to, frankly, if I knew how to work with it more, I'd change it more. <laughs> I'll break something by doing too much, but there's always something, you know, things that are always changing. You know, blog post, newsletter. I don't, you know, um, but things that have longevity and that have value, like training programs, a framework, perhaps, and mm. certainly if, if you uh, have a brand that's a very strong brand, and uh, and you want to protect it under trademark, that may be worthwhile as well. So, really, I mean, it, it's it's an investment, and so like, what will be the ROI? It's an ROI question, right? Mm. So, yeah.
1: You're making me realize that, you know, I, I would I would guess that most people are underprotected, like their IP is underprotected. Is, is that true? Uh, Well, I don't know underprotected
0: only because most people's IP is copyright, like things that they write, webinars, things like that. And so you own it when you create it. So you don't have to register it to own it. You own it because you created it. Where they might be underprotected is, you know, good old contracts is if they're not using contracts and therefore they're not controlling how it's being used Mm -hmm. is where it's not the registration that's the problem, it's the usage that's the problem. And uh, so making sure that you're controlling, you know, who has access to it, if it's a client deliverable that, you know, you're not giving away your own kind of pre-existing IP. If You're hiring a subcontractor, making sure that you're getting all the rights to what they're making for you. And so that's usually where people are missing something.
1: Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess going back to the roundtable example, I could see how if I were to certify people in doing it themselves or really train it at a greater scale mm-hmm. or yeah, have a more unique name for it, maybe like those would all be yes. indicators that it's my ip versus yes. something more general
0: In that yes and so something that you're going to exploit like that 100 percent, and you want that registered i want us to say you know you have copyright protection even if it's not registered but you can't enforce it if somebody infringes it until you register it so fascinating
1: that's why we need lawyers yeah. yes All right. Enough about me. So,
0: as you know, this podcast is about helping women make that journey from hourly to exit so that we are building sellable businesses. And so, creating exclusivity in our businesses, scale, predictability of income. Where does your work fit into that hourly to exit journey?
1: Yeah. So, it's really about building your body of work. So what my experience when I started regularly thought leading, as I said earlier, it's a practice or a lifestyle, not a one off, is I found that the more I did it, the more unique turns of phrase or ways of thinking about a concept or applying some a finding from this field to my field, more and more of those connections started to kind of present themselves to me. So I became known for things like social media monogamy which is a phrase that I coined to describe the fact that I only use LinkedIn. I don't use any other social. The concept of magnetic thought leadership, the idea of building an exponential audience. So all of these terms, I am becoming recognized for them. They give me concepts I can bring onto podcasts that I can pitch in speaking engagements that I can share with clients, really convey to clients. These are the kind of philosophies that we stand behind that we will help you with. So I feel like it's, building the asset that the intellectual assets of my company and what we're known for. So it has these really valuable long-term marketing benefits. You know, the social media monogamy, monogamy thing is from 2020 and I still talk about it and I still get great reactions to it and people bring it up to me and they tell me they remembered it. So those kind of memorable nuggets are just helping to build the momentum of my company and the powerhouse of my company and yeah, position me to be able to double my prices and offer group programs and offer equity pricing and have the the systems and the foundation in place to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah, positioning is absolutely an asset. It is a mark of exclusivity, right? And so having that is super important. And this is a very meta podcast, you know, uh, working with women who hopefully want to build a business to sell someday. Have you thought about selling your business?
1: You know, I haven't thought about it in the short term, but I have, it's kind of marinating in the, in the background, you know, I'm 33, I just turned 33. And so I hope to be working for much longer and to keep building my business. I have like big plans for it and, and ways that I want to make an impact, but yeah, this conversation is making me realize, well, even if it's 20 years down the line, you could start laying some of that brickwork now. And so I have a lot to marinate on on that front because it's, that's, that's new territory for me. You know, I started this company when I was 25. I didn't have a sweet clue what I was doing. And so a lot of it was like building the plane as you fly it. So there wasn't much like formality or planning or anything of that nature. But now I'm at the point where it's self-sufficient enough that I can start to think more long-term and consider what assets I would need to build or how I'd need to position myself for that eventual end, so I mean, if slash when I'm ready, I know who I'm going to call. Okay. Oh, well, by the way, you you are not alone in building
0: the plane as you fly it, because I mean, so many, especially I mean, post corporate people, you know, they count Leo out and they just use their expertise by being a basically a freelancer, for lack of a better word. And that is their business, but it's not really a business, right? But they grow it. They figure it out as they go along, like how to make it an actual business and, and not just an income stream from selling their time. And, and we all go through that evolution. And you make the point that the things that you want to do to build a saleable business, those are the same things that you do to build a scalable business. So you want to be doing those things for the next 30, 40 years, however long you want to run your business so that you have that that big juicy um, sale at the end. So finally to wrap up, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, building a more equitable economy. So uh, we'd love to talk about organizations and people who are doing great work in that area. Is there one that you'd like to
1: share with the audience? Yeah. So I was really inspired by my client, Chico Toshian. She is the author of Inclusion on Purpose, and um, a well-known HBR contributor. And there are lots of other things I could name after her name, but I'll stop there. She's a client and a lovely person and very inspiring to me. And something that she did when the new Supreme Court decision removed protections nationwide for abortion access, people who get pregnant, is she pledged to donate $10,000 to 10 different organizations facilitating access to abortion services and reproductive justice for women of color. So I was really moved by that. And she found and researched some excellent organizations. And one of those is Indigenous Women Rising. So we donated the 1% of our profits from last quarter to that organization. It helps provide reproductive services and abortion access to Indigenous women. I don't remember where right now, but you can find all that information on their website. And you can also find more organizations like that on Ruchika Tulshian's website, which is um, rtulshian.com, T-U-L-S-H-Y-A-N. So R-T-U-L-S-H-Y-A-N.com. I'll share share that link.
0: (laughs) Yes, we will (laughs) absolutely share all of these links in the sharing. You don't have to
1: memorize it if you're driving. (laughs) I did want to make sure, you know, she gets a lot of uh, misspellings of her name. So I like to always Mm -hmm. spell it properly when I have the opportunity. So I'll provide that link as well if you want to look at the other organizations she researched. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Now, where can everyone find you? So as I mentioned, you can really only find me social-wise on LinkedIn. So I'm the only Eva Janata on LinkedIn with spelling of my name. My company is Medusa Media Group. So you can find us uh, on our non-IP website, as discussed, <laughs> medusamediagroup.com. And from there, you can also join the short free email course I have on the five magnetic pillars of thought leadership. You can also go to letter5magneticpillars.com get access there or from the website itself and as i said writing and reading are my love language so i love to send emails to my list <laughs> so my favorite content goes out there first i just adore that medium so that's that and linkedin are the best ways to connect with me and i as i said i love meeting new people so send me a direct message reply to an email say hi and introduce yourself because i'd love to meet you
0: fantastic this has been a wonderful conversation, Eva. Thank you so much for sharing yourself so generously with the audience and uh, hope we can do this again sometime.
1: Thank you, Erin. This was really fun as I knew it would be.
0: Thanks for listening. Do not forget to check out the show notes for links to connect with today's guest and for the resources, offers, and organizations that we discussed. You can also find the links at hourlytoexit.com slash podcast. If you got value from this episode, please subscribe. And I'd be so grateful for a review. I'm here to support your journey.